welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Julia. Welcome to the podcast. Yes, we're, um, we're, we're having a great day. We're recording together. We're comfortable and warm. And uh, has their soft bras on. <laughs> we got our soft bras on. <laughs> At least I do. Um, so um, my topic today mm-hmm. is about something that's very near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. So um, I have a so many things running through my brain I know, right, right now. Um, so as a young teen... Uh, your good friend Lauren was someone screen who, name Artemis uh, underscore screen, moon <laughs> dare you throw that in my face <laughs> was uh, she was a dreamy child mm-hmm. who read a lot of books and read a lot of weird books which I think mom and dad I'm so glad that you think that I turned out okay because I feel like at some point in my adolescence they were very concerned about how it was going to turn out because I loved two things to read and write about okay one was serial killers <laughs> Yeah, okay. as one does. Uh, well, no, three things. The mm-hmm. second thing was um, like freaks of nature. Okay. So like weird um, bodily, um, like body mutations oh, and animal mutations mutant, and things like, like that. Mutants. Yes. Yeah. And my third thing was cryptozoology. <laughs> <laughs> so my topic today is entitled, Ah, Real Monsters, Cryptozoology. Pull up in a monster automobile gangster With a bad bitch that came from Sri Lanka Yeah, I'm in a tanga, color a Willy Wonka You could be the king, but watch the queen count So, Yay. Julia, do you know what cryptozoology is? Uh, why don't you tell me? Okay. <laughs> so, cryptozoology is a pseudoscience that aims to prove the existence of creatures from the folklore record. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Bigfoot or yes. the Loch Ness Monster. Those are... Um, they're what's called cryptids mm. uh, and cryptozoology is different from um, folklore in a lot of sense so folklore is like vampires no one's trying to prove that vampires well no one there's not a lot of uh, yeah. people who are prove, trying to prove that vampires are real mm-hmm. vampires and like um, zombies is another one mm-hmm. although there is a very good long form article out there I think on medium um, about zombies which is very very good but uh, cryptozoology is trying to prove that these these creatures are actually real and have a scientific basis for them and, in fact, just haven't been discovered yet mm-hmm. in like, any real way. And it's not just a bunch of crazy people. And it's not just a bunch mm-hmm. of crazy people. So full disclosure, before we begin, I want to say, LT, me, wants to believe. I want to believe. to believe. I want to believe. Mm-hmm. But I'm not, I, I don't want to be like, like purposefully ignorant. Mm-hmm. So I know that it's, they're probably not real, but how yeah. cool would it be Your if they were real? Your logical brain wants proof. Exactly. So the field of cryptozoology, um, which actually means the study of hidden animals, cryptozoology. Mm-hmm. Uh, the field originates from the works of colleagues Bernard Wevelmans, who is a Belgian-French zoologist, mm-hmm. and Ivan T. Sanderson, who is a Scottish zoologist. Uh, Wevelmans published On the Track of Unknown Animals in 1955, and that is considered to be a landmark work among the cryptozoologists, of which there are surprisingly many. Uh, similarly, Sanderson published a series of books 
that assisted in developing hallmarks of cryptozoology, which is a book including Abominable Snowmen, Legend Come to Life, which was published in 1961. So the term cryptid is preferred by cryptozoologists because the term monster is sensationalist and misleading. So scientists don't ever use the word monster? No. Oh, my goodness. No, that's terrible. It's a cryptid. So apparently that's supposed to like lend the field some credence. Mm. But, you know, it's not it's not really working. So uh, the 2003 discovery of the fossil remains of what's known as Homo florensis was cited by paleontologist Henry G., a senior editor at the journal Nature, as a possible evidence that, quote, in genealogical terms, makes it more likely that the stories of other mythological human-like creatures, such as yetis, are founded on grains of truth. Hmm. And he said, cryptozoology can come in from the cold, as in like, it's... <laughs> Like it's maybe safe now. this is you can talk about it. So a little background on Homo floresiensis um, is uh, the skeleton of I think you may have heard of it. They they nicknamed it the Hobbit. Mm. It's like a very small person that they think is not quite like the missing link, but definitely a member of the archaeological record of human ev- evolution. Okay. Yeah, and Homo floresiens. Oh gosh, this no. this guy. <laughs> It's Homo floresiensis. Floresiensis. Uh, (laughs) Was only three and a quarter feet tall. Like really, really tiny. Which is why they nicknamed it the Hobbit. So um, cryptozoology is widely criticized for a array of reasons, as (laughs) one can imagine. And is actually universally rejected by the... uh, academic world uh the field is regularly criticized for reliance on anecdotal information and Mm -hmm. because cryptozoologists do not follow the scientific method uh devoting a substantial portion of their efforts to investigation of animals that most scientists believe are unlikely to have existed Mm. so it's a lot of like hearsay and like i heard this thing or i saw grandma told me exactly my i saw a footprint so um a lot of cryptids another way to uh, another way that they kind of try and give the field some credence uh, a lot of cryptids are thought to be relict populations which is a real thing mm. um, that means a relict population is a species that was once widespread and more diverse in the past but is now reduced to a restricted area okay. and is usually reduced to just a single, a single species mm-hmm. so similarly a relictual taxon okay is a taxon which is a species or other you know kingdom phylum class mm-hmm. order or other lineage that is the sole surviving representative of a formerly large group. And a good example of this, at least in botany, is the ginkgo biloba. Okay. So the ginkgo tree was once part of a very large and vast array of ancient species of tree and plant. Like dinosaurs ate them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Dinosaurs and ginkgos. But now ginkgos are like the last remaining Mm. and are are still fairly widespread. I think ginkgo... Ginkgo is all along the East Coast, but we mm-hmm. have a lot of ginkgo trees in this area. Yeah, they're really pretty. And you they can, all just decided it was winter and they all dropped their leaves. All at once. <laughs> it's really funny. And they put out those like stinky berries that mm. are really gross smelling. And you step on them with your boots and they're really gross. But um, you can tell that they are a prehistoric uh, plant because the leaves don't go like the... The branches don't extend into twigs oh. and then push out leaves. The leaves actually grow out from the the branch itself. Wow. And that's how you can tell that they're... Uh, my mother taught me that. Isn't that oh, cool? How about that? Thanks, Mom. So, um, th- so and finally, talking about just cryptozoology as a general st- field of study, paleontologist and general grumpy pants George Gaylord Simpson said... 
Humans are the most inventive, deceptive, and gullible of all animals. <laughs> I know. It's like, ugh, man, we want to believe. Give, mm. give it up, Simpson. So anyway, so I'm going to talk about a couple of uh, very famous crypt- mm. cryptids. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to talk about one that's actually real. <laughs> oh, Is that I exciting? can't wait. So we're going to start with your favorite and mine, Bigfoot, also <laughs> known as the Sasquatch. Uh, the Sasquatch um, is part of American folklore, specifically. It is mostly in the Pacific Northwest. Um, he, Mr. Mm. Bigfoot, sure. is described as a large, hairy, bipedal Mr. humanoid. Bigfoot, <laughs> who do you think you are, <laughs> Mr. Bigfoot? See, we're going to sing every yeah. time. <laughs> sorry, everyone. Uh, sorry, everybody. Um, so the term Sasquatch is an anglic- anglicized derivative of the uh, Helcomellum word, which is a Native American word, uh, which is Sasquets. So similar creatures around the world uh, are known as uh, the legends of wild men. Mm-hmm. And they're found on every continent except Antarctica. Oh. Which is kind of amazing. So terms like skunk ape, yarin. The skunk ape. Skunk ape. That's the Florida one, I think. I think, yeah, mm-hmm. you're probably right. That he, they live in like the, the marshes mm-hmm. and, and yeah. the Everglades. And the Everglades, mm-hmm. thank you. Uh, the yarin, the yowie, the mandibarung, the yeti, abominable snowman, mm-hmm. etc. So it is basically described as a bipedal gorilla about nine feet tall. Um, (laughs) They are nocturnal and stinky. And uh, footprints have been found as large as 24 inches long and eight inches wide. So big, big feet. Oh, known as big foot. Big, big foot. Yes. Um, Native Americans in this region have many stories of various wild men, but this has been consolidated into one creature by white people, which is the Sasquatch. So... um, a lot of different tribes and nations along the Pacific Northwest, but also kind of across the United States in a general way. Mm-hmm. There have been a lot of legends of these wild men. Um, and so uh, we just heard of these things or cited these things. And so it just became just one guy. Ah. So this actually touches on my master's thesis. If you could even imagine, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't honestly, I wasn't so um, into <laughs> cryptozoology that I actually made my master's thesis about it, but sort mm-hmm. of. She made her own major. I did. I made my own major. Cryptozoology. <laughs> I got a master's in it. So in the Kwakakawakawaku nations, I'm not kidding. That's a real thing of the Pacific Northwest. It's the central coast of British Columbia and the Vancouver Islands. Okay. Kwakakawaku, mm-hmm. which means the people who speak Kawaku. Um, it, there is an ancestor figure of Zunawaka, who is a cannibal giant. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she is most often a she. Nice. She eats children and she cries, hoo to attract them. I didn't want to do that right into the microphone. Um, and she imitates her grandmother's voices and children frequently outwit her in these legends and kill her and take her treasures. Um, so the name Bigfoot was first recorded by Americans in the late 19th century. Um, this man named Spotted Elk, he was also called Chief Bigfoot, was a well-known Lakota leader who was killed during the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890. Mm. And he was famous in his time and may have been the namesake for two fabled bears in the West. In the late 19th and early 20th century, at least two enormous marauding grizzly bears were widely noted in the press and each nicknamed Bigfoot because they would see their tracks. Uh, This may have inspired the common name of the ape creature and been a matter of confusion in early stories. Okay. So, um, so the idea is that the, all the Bigfoot sightings and things are mostly just black bears. They're probably black bears or grizzly bears in this region. And it's not just the Pacific Northwest. Apparently there have been sightings in rural areas of the Great Lakes region, including in New York state. Like I saw a map of like the United States of like where, 
uh, Bigfoot has been sighted and it's like different colors <laughs> for like how like light blue was like not many and like black was like all the time. New York State was like dark blue. I was like, really? But we have a black bear population. That's true. Okay. Um, I always thought of <laughs> I always thought of Bigfoot um, as kind of looking like Harry and the Hendersons. Of course, Harry and the Hendersons. Because of there's a there's a video. There's like yes. a famous video. Uh-huh. Of like a, a uh, Bigfoot like slow, slowly like walking. Meandering with yeah. his arms and like a slow gait. Yeah. And that's and what they like turns and <laughs> looks at the camera and then the camera breaks. And yeah. Then, yeah. Blah. Whatever. Uh, but yeah, that's what they based mm. Harry from mm-hmm. Harry and the Hendersons on. So okay. there you go. So here I have like pop culture is feeding my. But they, they inform each other. Right. Yeah. So like there's the video. The video may or may not have been faked. But they based Harry of mm-hmm. Harry and the Hendersons on that video, which informs everybody else's idea yeah. of what the Bigfoot looks like. At least everyone who was born in the 1980s yes. and saw <laughs> and saw him get rejected, gets punched in the face. And he was like, "Go, we don't want you." John oh Lithgow God, is finest. John Lithgow from Rochester. Wait, he's from Rochester. Yes, he was born in Rochester. He dev. He sounds like he was born in England. Right? Well, here's the thing. He developed an Atlantic, which is a mm, very mm-hmm. um, a very Rooseveltian accent mm, mm-hmm. that clipped okay, almost British. I can hear that. Yeah, he developed that in um, in school because it, that's like a th- theater. Mm-hmm. Theater. Um, and he was here. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that was a very good John Lithgow a- a- <laughs> impression. Um, a friend of mine saw him. He was at the Mag. Yeah, a couple weeks. We ago. We thought he was here filming something. He we was trying he was to filming a movie, out. but he came to he the Memorial Art Gallery. Yeah, he's from here. Isn't that crazy? Oh. Apparently, he's very tall and a very kind man. He took pictures with everybody. So, um, speaking of Bigfoot, uh, <laughs> John Lithgow, we love you. Um, so, we're going to talk about a couple of uh, interesting Bigfoot hoaxes. So one of them, uh, Tom Biscardi is a longtime Bigfoot enthusiast and CEO of a company called Searching for Bigfoot Inc. <laughs> wow, really just I know. lay it right all out. I on mean, the line. they don't want to lie. He doesn't want to lie. Don't call him if you're going fishing. Like this is <laughs> No, we are searching for Bigfoot. <laughs> uh, he is a longtime um, Bigfoot enthusiast and he appeared on the Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Radio Show on July 14th, 2005 and said that he was 98% sure that his group will be able to capture a Bigfoot, which they have been tracking in the Happy Camp, California area. So they think there's, it's not just one. They think it's like a population. Bigfoot. They think there are many big feet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, there, there is, is a, a cacophony of big feet. Big feet. <laughs> Wandering the Pacific Northwest. A, a murder of big feet, if you will. <laughs> Oh, what? I a business, what? a big feet. <laughs> Hello, business. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> man. Um, so he, they had his group searching for Bigfoot Inc. has been tracking a Bigfoot. And he said a month later, he announced on the same radio show that he had access to a captured Bigfoot and was arranging a pay-per-view event for people to see it. Oh, Jesus. Okay. So then he appeared on Coast to Coast AM again and a few days later to announce that there was no captive Bigfoot. He, <laughs> he blamed, are you ready for this? He blamed an unnamed woman for misleading him and said that the show's audience was gullible, which is a, a very, a very strong and textbook indication of projection yeah. like sure shayla fom am i right am i right yeah please you all know what we're talking about 
Um, in August 2012, a man in Montana was killed by getting hit by a car while perpetuating a Bigfoot hoax using a ghillie suit. So What's that? So I didn't know either. I had to look it up. So a ghillie suit, G-H-I-L-L-I-E. That's an Irish term. Okay. Um, ghillie suit is like, you know, like snipers, they wear those big suits that have like like leaves and, and stuff all over it. They look oh. like big floofy and they like lay on like the ground for years. Like camouflaged. Yes, yeah. like camouflage, But, but like, like with sticks yes. coming out of your hair. Exactly. So that's a ghillie suit. Oh, wow. So there you go. That's a little trivia for you. So... In January 2014, Rick Dyer, who was a perpetuator of a previous Bigfoot hoax, keep Mm. that in mind, uh, said that he had killed a Bigfoot creature on September 2012 outside San Antonio, Texas, which is kind of too far south. really low. Yeah. He said that he had scientific tests performed on the body, from DNA tests to 3D optical scans to body scans. It is the real deal, he said. It's Bigfoot, and Bigfoot's here, and I shot it, and now I'm proving it to the world. He said that he had kept the body in a hidden location that he had intended to take it on tour across North America in 2014. And then on March 28th of that year, Dyer admitted on his Facebook page that his Bigfoot corpse was another hoax. What a surprise. Mm. Uh, He had paid a pro to manufacture the prop from latex foam and camel hair, which he nicknamed Hank. And Dyer earned approximately $60,000 from the tour of the second fake Bigfoot corpse. He said that he did kill a Bigfoot, but did not take the real body on Mm. tour for fear that Mm. it would be stolen. Of course. You know, it's tough. Um, and then finally, in regards to Bigfoot, um, Jane Goodall, she wants to believe. Oh. She wants to believe in Bigfoot. Um, when asked for her opinion on Bigfoot in a September 27, 2002 inter- interview on NPR's Science Fridays, she said, I'm sure they exist. And later said, chuckling, well, I'm a romantic, so I always wanted them to exist. And finally, you know, why isn't there a body? I can't answer that. And maybe they don't exist, but I want them to. Hmm. In 2012, when asked again by the Huffington Post, Goodall said, I'm fascinated and would actually love them to exist. Adding, of course, it's strange that there has been never been a single authentic hide or hair of the Bigfoot, but I've read all the accounts. So she is into it. Yeah. She wants to believe. So do you think the Bigfoot like popularity was a like 20th 21st century thing or do you think people were interested in it like the like the white european settlers were interested in this myth like i I think they were very much interested in it i Mm -hmm. think you know because there's always been this idea of um you know the the noble savage idea Mm -hmm. so like native americans like they have an access to the spirit world they are you know they they more they know more about this stuff than we do but they're still like weaker than we are so Mm -hmm. this idea of the noble savage that is weak but also like has is in touch with parts of this world and the spirit world that we don't know anything about. Mm. So that was definitely a thing that they would fear these monsters that the native Americans knew about, or maybe actually used as weapons. Cause you're talking about the guy like manufacturing the suit and taking it around just really makes me think of Barnum of the PT Barnum. Yes. And like, you know, they had them, them, Tahitian mermaid and the you know exactly yeah and apparently Bigfoot fever in a big way in the United States kind of hit its peak in like the 1970s which is when did he also have a disco album like Pac-Man fever he did it was like disco duck it was disco Bigfoot it was it was great (laughs) just the best producers on it so that's Bigfoot Okay. Uh, my next one is my personal favorite as a young as a young Lauren. <laughs> I was very into this and I really wanted to believe the Loch Ness Monster. Mm. Also known as Nessie. There are other similar aquatic animals across the world, um, including Champ in Lake Champlain, oh, which yes. is uh, fairly near us. The Ogopogo in British Columbia and the Mokale Mbembe in the Congo River Basin. You pointed at me like, great you know. job. Oh, no. thank you. Thank you. Just- 
It just, just tossed that off. right off your tongue. Oh, man. I mean, you know, I'm very fluent in Swahili. Jombo. <laughs> jombo, jombo. Um, so the uh, earliest report of a monster in the vicinity of Loch Ness appears in The Life of St. Columba by 6th century abbot and saint Adamnan. Um, so Irish monk St. Columba was staying in the land of the Picts, P-I-C-T-S, mm. uh, with his companions when he encountered local residents burying a man by the river Ness. Uh, they explained that the man was swimming in the river when he was attacked by a water beast, which mauled him and dragged him underwater. Although they tried to rescue him in a boat, he was dead. <gasps> Columba sent a follower, Lungui Makumin, I think that's his name, to swim across the river. Is it in Gaelic? It is. And me, it's it probably like nothing like what Jim. it's spelled then. So yeah. Columbus sent a follower, Jim. <laughs> uh, the beast approached him, but Columba made the sign of the cross and mm. said, go no further. Do not touch the man. Go back at once. And the creature stopped as if it had been pulled back with ropes <gasps> and fled. And Columba's men in the picks gave thanks for what they perceived as a miracle. Wow. So water beast stories were common in medieval hagiographies, uh, mm-hmm. as you know. And this tale probably recycled a common motif attached to a local landmark to give it some cred. Um, aside from this, what, which was written 100 years after the purported event, as many things were, there are no claimed sightings before 1933. Mm. Hmm. So in, uh, on August 4th, 1933, the Courier, the Courier published a report by Londoner George Spicer that several weeks earlier while they were driving around the lock, he and his wife saw the nearest approach to a dragon or prehistoric animal that I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> wow, that's the closest thing to a dragon I've ever is, seen. What a strange thing. I just imagine they were very, like very nonplussed. Yeah. Just like, huh, darling. Oh. Do you see this dragon or prehistoric animal <laughs> trundling across the road toward Quite. the rocks? Would you like a cuppa? <laughs> and it had an animal in its mouth when they saw it crossing oh. the road. Um, so that was published in The Courier. And then on November 12th, 1933, the first alleged photograph of the monster was taken by Hugh Gray. Is this the picture? No, it's not. I'm going to talk about <laughs> okay. the picture. Um, so this photo was slightly blurred. It has been noted that if one looks closely, the head of a dog can be seen. <laughs> And oh. apparently Gray had taken his Labrador for a walk that day. Uh. And it is suspected that the photograph depicts his dog fetching a stick from the, uh. the river. <laughs> um, others have suggested that the photograph depicts an otter or a swan. And the original negative is lost. Mm. Uh, however, in 1963, Maurice Burton came into possession of two lantern slides, contact positives from the original negatives. And when projected onto a screen, it revealed an otter rolling at the surface in characteristic fashion. <laughs> so it's just a picture of an otter. Yeah. I didn't Aww. know this, but uh, Loch Ness has both seals and otters as oh, like, I didn't a living population that. there. Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know either. Um, so the one you're thinking of, which looks like yeah. a man's hand in like a duck <laughs> position, like floating above yeah. the surface, it's known as the surgeon's photograph. Okay. So it is reportedly the first photo of the creature's head and neck. Um, it was supposedly taken by Robert Kenneth Wilson, who was a London gynecologist. Um, <laughs> and it was published in the Daily Mail in April of 1934. And Wilson's refusal to have his name associated with it let it being known as the surgeon's photograph, okay. which is why it's called that. Mm-hmm. According to him, he was looking at the lock when he saw the monster, grabbed his camera, and snapped four photos. Only two exposures came out clearly, and the first reportedly shows a small head and back, and the second shows a similar head in a mm-hmm. diving position. Uh, the first photo became well known, and the second attracted little publicity because of its blurriness. Yeah. You just really couldn't see. So, um, the truth of what this was came out later. 
So it was reportedly a toy submarine built by Christian Sperling, who was the son-in-law of a man named Marmaduke Wetherell. <gasps> what a great name. Isn't that a great name? It's so British. Marmaduke Wetherell. So uh, Marmaduke Wetherell actually worked for the Daily Mail, and he claimed that he found um, Loch Ness Monster footprints in the shores and it actually was very obviously a hoax someone had yeah. used um an elephant foot like um like a stamp yeah like thing. like an elephant yeah. foot like someone would like use in a, the cartoons when yes. they have to make footprints exactly. and they attach a thing to stamp, a stamp, stamp stamp but it was like a an ashtray like an elephant foot oh, ashtray wow. like a big game hunter huh. and like um, so uh, the daily mail actually publicly ridiculed him for believing that oh. it was nessie but this um, is still footprints. the photo that we see, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So he to get revenge on the mail, the Daily Mail, Weatherell perpetuated his hoax with co-conspirators, his uh, son-in-law, Sperling, who was a sculpture specialist, Ian Weatherell, who was his son, who bought the material, hmm. and Maurice Chambers, who was an insurance agent. I don't know what he was doing there. But um, the toy submarine was bought from Woolworths, and its head and neck were made from wood putty. After hmm. testing it in a local pond, the group went to Loch Ness, where Ian Weatherell took the photos near the Altsay Tea House. When they heard a water bailiff approaching, Duke Weatherell sank the model with his foot, and it is presumably <laughs> still somewhere in Loch Ness. Oh, wow. So Chambers gave the photographic plates to Wilson, a friend of his who enjoyed a good practical joke, and Wilson brought the plates to Ogstons, an Inverness chemist, and gave them to George Morrison for development, and he sold the first photo to the Daily Mail, who then announced that the monster mm. had been photographed. So it was this elaborate yeah. plan to kind of get back at the Daily Mail through the same Jeez. hoax that he had fallen for. Yeah. Um, a question about Loch Ness. Sure, please. Is it like um, a bog? Or is it like a clear lake so it is a very it's kind of cross between the two okay. so Loch Ness is very very large mm -hmm. and it is very very deep mm -hmm. and it is fed by um, it was created by a uh, a glacier I was good during the ice glacier. I thought we were playing charades for a second <laughs> I know I just made like a scooping <laughs> noise a scooping motion with my hand um, it was created by a glacier so it's very very deep and it's actually fed by underground springs oh, okay but because of and it has like a tide and everything it's mm -hmm. very big and because of the underground springs feeding oh, it it's, it's very like churny sure. and so it's not very clear okay which is why which perpetuates why that there might be something living yeah, so very deeply under like they just can't send someone down to look for that toy submarine or yeah, whatever exactly it's, it's very deep yeah okay so um a, uh, a lot of uh, theories abound as to what the Loch Ness monster mm -hmm. is. And um, some people say maybe it's a plesiosaur. So oh, sure. this is the most common explanation. Um, however, and I did not know this, plesiosaurs were probably cold-blooded reptiles needing warm tropical waters. Um, and the average temperature of Loch Ness is only about 42 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh. If the plesiosaurs were warm-blooded, they would require a food supply beyond that of Loch Ness. They yeah. would need like so many more fishes and things. Mm -hmm. um, also, someone pointed out that the osteology, the bones of the neck, mm -hmm. makes it absolutely certain that the plesiosaur could not lift its head up oh. swan-like out of the water. Okay. Because it was just more too like heavy. A turtle. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, no, it had a long neck. But kind of like a snake, it, it couldn't like lift it mm -hmm. up because of the buoyancy of okay. water. Um, also, the lock is only about 10,000 years old, which uh, dates to the end of the last ice age. 
And before then, it was frozen for about 20,000 years, which, okay. which like post-dates plesiosaurs like mm-hmm. being around. Uh, and if creatures similar to plesiosaurs lived in Loch Ness, they would be seen frequently since they would have to surface several times a day to breathe. Yeah, right? Yeah, because okay. they're not, they don't have gills or anything. Um, so most likely the sightings at Loch Ness are hoaxes mm-hmm. or people trying to get um, tourists to come because yeah. it's a, it's a yeah. big deal. And, uh, or most likely otters, seals, or swimming deer. Also, <laughs> and here, yeah, deer like to oh, swim. okay. It's mm. nice and cool in there. Mm. Um, also, this is kind of a cool thing. Trees around the lock are known for their high resin content. There's a okay. lot of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Non-deciduous yeah. trees? Conifer. Conifers, thank you. Um, <laughs> I couldn't think of the word conifer, but I could think of the word non-deciduous. <laughs> so they have a high resin content. So when a tree decays at the bottom of the lock, mm-hmm. um, the gases are trapped under the oh. thick resin. So until the pressure gets to be too much and then the resin like pops. Oh. So the resulting explosion of these gases shoots the log up to the surface of the water because it's buoyant wow. now because it's been decaying. Okay. So every so often you'll be sitting on the shores of Loch Ness still as can be and suddenly something goes out of the water and it's just it's just a decaying log. It's just a log. But you can imagine, like, yeah. there's all these stories about this crazy plesiosaur. So you're like, wow. Yeah. So isn't that cool? Yeah, that's really interesting. It makes a lot that's of like sense. the only credible <laughs> <laughs> right? theory that I've heard. But it, you know, I say, like, me and Jane Goodall have a lot in common, one. Um, <laughs> you're, you're both... <laughs> Nobel Prize winning scientists. Yes. Both Nobel Prize winning scientists. We both communicate with apes. And uh, we both really want to believe in cryptozoology. Like, <laughs> I know, like, like logically, I know that there's no such thing as the Loch Ness yeah. Monster. I, logically, I know that there's no Bigfoot. We would have found, like, decaying bodies yeah. on the shores or, like, there would have been a dead, like, mm-hmm. bones of a Bigfoot by now. But, like, how cool is the idea that there are things in this world, even now, in 2017, that there are things that we've never seen before? Well, there are in the yeah. ocean. Exactly. <laughs> you have just provided me with an excellent transition. Thank you, Julia. So the last and final topic that I'm going to be talking about, well, crypto, cryptid, mm-hmm. is the Kraken. The Kraken. Release the Kraken. So it is a legendary sea creature that is said to dwell off the coast of Norway and Greenland. It was first described by the Dane Eric Pontopedian, who is the Bishop of Bergen, in 752. Um, in Norwegian, the word kraken is the definite form of crake, which is a word designating an unhealthy animal or something <laughs> twisted. Oh, boy. Which is a cognate with the English crook or crank. Ah, okay. um, in modern German, crake, which is the plurals kraken, kraken, it means octopus, but can also refer to the legendary kraken. Okay. Uh, Pontipidian made several claims about the Kraken, including the notion that the creature was sometimes mistaken for an island. It was so big. <gasps> and that the real danger to ships was not the Kraken itself, but rather the whirlpool left in its wake. Ooh. And um, he also said that uh, the Kraken was so big that if it so chose, its tentacles could wrap around the largest man of war and drag it down to the depths. It was so big. So um, some traits of Kraken re- resemble undersea volcanic activity incurring in the Icelandic region because okay. there's a lot of, a lot of uh, volcanoes. volcanoes in that area, even underwater. Uh, bubbles of water would rise because of the volcanic mm-hmm. activity, but people would be like, it's the Kraken. Sudden, it. <laughs> sudden dangerous currents 
and uh, appearance of new eyelets. So there would be just, Ooh. you know, there would be a undersea, you know, volcanic activity. Wow. And then like a now there's couple months there. later, suddenly there's like a big thing of obsidian. Um, so odds are the Kraken is, they, they weren't that far off. It's probably a giant squid, mm-hmm. right? Or, and I didn't know this, there's also another squid called the colossal squid. Ooh. Isn't that cool? So <laughs> what's bigger than giant? Mm, col- colossal. colossal. <laughs> <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> so the Kraken was thought to have hooks on its tentacles. Um, and the colossal squid actually has sharp hooks on its limbs. And some that swivel and some that are three pointed. Isn't that crazy? They swivel. It's oh my like, gosh. Coming at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, they both, uh, giant squids and colossal squids have what's known as uh, abyssal gigantism. And that means when an aquatic species grows to enormous size due to the depth of their <laughs> habitat. And a lot of pe- people don't like um, um, water people. Water people? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Marine biologists. Marine biologists. Thank you, Julia. Water people. I'm sorry, marine biologists. That was awful. Uh, marine biologists theorize that um, adaptation to scarcer food resources, greater pressure, and colder temperatures probably result in a abyssal gigantism. But so the pressure of the water makes them be bigger. bigger. Makes them grow bigger. Interesting. Yeah. And the colder temperatures makes them grow bigger. And the... Oh also the scarcer food resources but in and i i i didn't like go super deep into the uh, abyssal gigantism because that wasn't the topic of my conversation <laughs> of my topic but i'm not 100% sure what like scarcer all of those things mean for mm. to make something larger cuz you think that because of scarcer food resources they would be smaller cuz they would require l- less but i'm but then now that i'm saying it out loud when you think of like a hummingbird, uh-huh. hummingbirds require, they have to eat like all day long yeah, because true. they're so small. They mm-hmm. have to like, they put out so much energy. So just to, so the Kraken is an anti hummingbird. The Kraken is the opposite of a hummingbird. Just like, <laughs> so when we're playing charades, <laughs> yes. When I'm like Kraken, but opposite of it's a hummingbird. <laughs> Noted. Yeah. So giant squids have been uh, part of legend for years and years and years, the hundreds and thousands of years. And there have been um, bodies like like carcasses mm-hmm. of giant squids have a, that have like washed up ashore right. in Japan. Um, but the giant squid was first discovered in 2004 by re- Japanese researchers, and they took this was the first time they took photos of a live specimen. Oh, oh, they found it alive. Yeah, they found it alive, <gasps> and they took a video of a living specimen in 2012. So. Um, they can get up to 43 feet long for females and 33 feet long for males. The ladies are bigger. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. Uh, The eyeball is 11 inches in diameter. (laughs) I know. It's like a dinner plate. I know. And they have teeth on their suckers. So they just like bite, (laughs) bite you. A colossal squid can get up to 46 feet long and weigh up to 1,650 pounds. How do we know the difference? Between a giant they're squid different. and a they're colossal actually different squid. species. Do they look different? They do look different. Okay. Not like super different. Not just different. like the colossal one is just bigger. Yeah, no, they're they're different species, and they have what's known as a mantle. So like that that like oh. wedge shaped thing on the top yeah, of their okay. heads. But, you know, like their eye is just below it. Um, their mantles are different, and the, like the proportions of Does their tentacles. Does only have one eye? Oh, I don't know. Or is that just cartoons? Well, I do know that octop- 
octopi uh-huh. have two eyeballs, but they have one dominant eyeball, like like you could have a dominant hand. Uh-huh. So a dominant eyeball in an octopus is like the one that they use the most. <laughs> and it's bigger. Ooh. Isn't that weird? Um, I like cartoon octopus. Yeah, cartoon octopus. Well, they're also, also <laughs> octopi are very sweet. Like they're super smart. And um, they actually like when they meet a new person when they're in captivity and they're like under research. When they need to meet a new person, you have to like stick your whole arm into their tank because then they shake, they shake hands with you. They like taste, taste, with taste. With all their hands? All their hands? No, just one. They like wrap, they'll wrap a tentacle around your, your arm and then their suckers go like, because they let, they taste you to like get to know you. And then their one big eye will like surface to look at My you. My face is horrified right now. <laughs> I think they're super cool. <laughs> they're so smart. And then after they mate, they go crazy. They go like, they go loop to loop in their tanks and then they die. What? Yeah, their eyeballs just like, bloop, 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 they bloop. die? They yeah, they die after mating. That seems like. I know it's counterintuitive, right? Yeah, right. It's crazy. Oh, no, man. there's there's an article. I'll probably tweet it out because <laughs> this doesn't have anything to do with squids. Maybe a little bit, but. The Octopi article that I found from Nature Magazine from like 2002 is so, so good. Oh, wow. It, it really makes you feel warm and fuzzy about octopus. So what was squids. I talking about? I was talking about squids. Colossal um, squids. Colossal squids. They're very big. Um, yes. They can weigh almost a ton. And their eyeball is up to 16 inches in diameter. <laughs> and the largest specimen captured alive was over 1,000 pounds and 15 feet long. Isn't that crazy? That's a lot of calamari. Oh, it's a delicious. You fry it up and put it in a marinade. I shouldn't say that. Sorry, giant, giant squid. So that's my, um, <laughs> so that's my, my topic on cryptozoology. Wow. Yeah. It's, um, it's a cool thing. It's not real, but it's an interesting kind of deep mm-hmm. dive into like how people interpret things and how like an entire population or culture of people can be like, yeah, we totally Definitely. believe in this. And it, and it almost feels a little, oh, okay. It almost feels a little more legitimate than people that are interested in like aliens because you're like, yeah. well, these things are here and people have seen them. Yeah. And so, you know, th- those episodes of, um, the X-Files are a little more, <laughs> are a little more, a believable. Little more believable. Well, it's interesting cause there's like different, there's different genres I would say of like the same thing. So cryptozoology is like, like animals we've never met yet. Mm -hmm. And then legend is like almost religious things that, Mm. that people have talked about in cultures for year for like thousands of years, but no one actually believes that they're real. Um, and then there's like extraterrestrial, which is like aliens and Mm -hmm. like weird space stuff and like even like underground things. So that's pretty cool. Um, so my quiz, so my, my topic was, ah, real monsters. <laughs> so my quiz is called, oh, real monsters, which is about serial killers. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Question number one, which serial killer of boys and men performed as Pogo the Clown at charitable events and children's parties? Question number two, played to perfection by Ted Levine in The Silence of the Lambs, the character of serial killer Buffalo Bill was a mashup of many real-life serial killers that terrorized the U.S. What was Buffalo Bill's real name? Question number three, speaking of The Silence of the Lambs, who was the author of the original book? Question number four, 
Here's a true or false. Despite his being the inspiration for quite a few cinematic serial killers, including Leatherface and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Ed Gein was not a serial killer. Question number five. Fans of My Favorite Murder will know. Who was true crime writer and legend Anne Rule became close friends with while working at a crisis hotline in Seattle? This would later become the inspiration for her book, The Stranger Beside Me. Question number six. Who was the first known American serial killer? Question number seven. David Berkowitz was dubbed Son of Sam after he wrote a letter to a newspaper. What was the press calling him before the letter? Question number eight. During which decade was the term serial killer coined? Question number nine. What are the three behaviors known as the McDonald triad, which supposedly indicates a predilection for future violent behaviors in children? And finally, question number 10. In the Seinfeld episode, The Frogger, Kramer warns about a yet unnamed serial killer running loose in the park. Two suggestions he made to the police were Hedzo and Son of Dad. (laughs) What was the ultimate nickname? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be back with answers. I know you and I both love serial killers. I'm a little bit more vocal about it than you are, but I'm, I'm imagining you're going to do pretty good on this quiz. Yeah, I might, I might be okay. 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 Question number one, what serial killer of boys and men performed as Pogo the Clown for charitable events and children's parties? John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy. Um, first, you said of boys and men, and I pictured of boys two men, and then I pictured a clown going after <laughs> Steve's beloved boys Not two boys men. boys to men. The Motown Philly boys oh, are back again. <laughs> But um, no, they're safe. Yeah, they're safe from yeah, John, John Wayne, Wayne Gacy, Gacy, who like really capitalized on his like killer clown image when he was right. in prison and he would do paintings of clowns and then oh. people would buy them and he would like they would buy like for a Ew. lot of money and it was really creepy and people like, are sick. Yeah. There's also a song about him and Sufjan Stevens's Come on, Feel the Illinois, which oh. is a great album. But the John Wayne Gacy song is very creepy. Ew. I prefer um, the Adelaide Stevenson song yes, myself. That's a good song. That's a good one. Um, okay, so played to protection by perfection by Ted Levine in The Silence of the Lambs, character of serial killer Buffalo Bill. What was his real name? See, this is who I thought was Ed Gain. I don't know. Oh, it's uh, Jamie Gum. That's his... Oh, in the movie? In the movie, his oh, real name is Jamie nope. Gum. Yeah. Great. So there you go. Now I know. Um, speaking of Silence of the Lambs, who is the author of the original book? <sighs> The author's last name is somewhere between <laughs> F and H because I can picture you're not that yeah shelving, shelving it, it at the Oakmont Carnegie Library. Mm-hmm. No, you're not wrong. It's Thomas Harris. Yeah. 
Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, I didn't realize this until I was doing this quiz. It's not Silence of the Lambs. It's The Silence of the Lambs, mm. which is the title of both the book and the mm-hmm. movie. But everyone just calls it Silence of the Lambs. Mm. They um, they filmed part of that movie in Pittsburgh. Okay. Um, they did the scene where he was in the cage in the ballroom at the soldiers and sailors memorial oh. hall in pittsburgh how interesting yeah and that then was they cool have room. like it's a really cool like venue for um events and stuff and they have like a little sandwich board sign like in the hallway like way down the hall that's like by the way science of the lambs was filmed here and then they have like a picture of like the production happening in that ballroom oh man really, like what a dark movie i've only seen it once but uh, it's um it's definitely a cultural touchstone yeah. Okay, here's a true or false. Despite his being the inspiration for quite a few cinematic serial killers, including Leatherface and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Ed Gein was not a serial killer. I think he was a serial killer. Uh, he was. So, what word am I looking for? So true or false? <laughs> true, he was not a serial killer, or false, he was a serial killer? I think killer. false, he was a serial killer. You are wrong. It is true, he was he was not a serial killer. Okay. So a serial killer is you kill more than three people. Okay. Um, at, like essentially, there's more involved in that <laughs> definition, but at least three people. Yeah. Ed Gein was definitely a creepy grave robber who used human skin to accessorize right. and also decorate he made his a home. Belt. Yes, he made he a belt, belt of nipples. Um, but so he crass. I know. He only killed two people during his lifetime. Oh. And a lot of people think that he, because he was also the basis for Psycho. He was also the basis for. Um, hmm. I forgot the name of the character in Psycho, yep. the dude, but because uh, he was obsessed with his mom and she was the first grave that he dug up. Like her death was the thing that kind of set Bates. him off. Norman Motel. Bates. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. He was the basis for Norman Bates. Okay. Um, and so his mother was the first one he dug up and mm. made like a bodysuit out of her skin. Uh, so there you go. In fact, one of the women that Ed Gein killed, he actually um, dressed like a deer and like hung upside down in his barn and that's how they found him he was not he was also not okay like yeah. granted no serial killer is okay but he, he also was, was like mentally effed. yeah he was mentally disabled so <laughs> fans of my favorite murder will know who was the true crime writer who was true crime writer and legend and rules friend while working at a crisis hotline in seattle that'd be ted bundy it would be ted bundy um so there it was the inspiration for her autobiographical book, The Stranger Beside Me, and also it became a movie starring Barbara Hershey mm-hmm. as Enril. Um, so, which is just, for someone who was a true, true crime writer, the fact that Ted Bundy yeah. managed to charm the pants off of her. Yeah. A real psychopath. What a real psychopath. Okay, number six. Who was the first known American serial killer? Okay. So. Okay. I think I know what the answer is supposed to be. Oh, okay. Is it H.H. H. Holmes? Yes, it is H.H. Okay. H. Holmes. Because uh, we have those, you know, stories of like people that ran boarding houses in yeah, like the, the Bloody Benders. The Bloody Benders. Which my favorite murder uh, just Belle did. Belle Gund, who mm-hmm. she killed a whole oh my God, F ton so of many dudes. People. But, you know, good for her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it's interesting to hear kind of those stories where people were like people were traveling, yeah, and they were going to go to the exhibition, and then mm-hmm. their families never saw them again. Yeah, and it's like it's really scary so to think scary. about that because you know you drive home from your parents' house and your mom's like, "You have to text me when you get yeah, home." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's so much harder for serial killers right now. 
poor things. God. <laughs> I know. So H.H. H. Holmes. Yes, yeah. it is H.H. H. Holmes, who was the master of the murder castle um, and is depicted very, like, incredibly mm-hmm. in... Um, uh, Devil in the White City. Devil in the White City. Thank you. Um, which is a great historical nonfiction book. Yeah. That reads like a novel. It's fab- fantastic. Yeah. There definitely was... Um, it might even be the same name, a Netflix documentary on him mm. as well. That was that was pretty good. Master of the Murder Castle or um, Devil in the White City. One of those. It's all right. Yeah. Figure it out. It was on H.H. Holmes. It was I remember H. watching H. it. Okay. Question number seven. David Berkowitz was dubbed Son of Sam after he wrote a letter to the newspaper calling himself Son of Sam. Uh, what was the press calling him before the letter? I don't remember. Um, I didn't know this either. It was He was known as the 44 caliber killer because oh. he used a 44 caliber gun. Oh, that feels lazy. And he was killing <laughs> dogs. Apparently he was like killing yeah. dogs. But then the dog was telling him. But then, yeah, his dog's, do. his neighbor's Labrador yeah. was telling him what to do. So what are you going to do? Uh, question number eight. During which decade was the term serial killer coined? The 70s? It was the 70s. It's uh, a mine hunter. Yes, Mindhunter. Yes, if you've been watching Mindhunter. Uh, we watched the first two episodes, and I don't think I can finish it. Oh, really? Is yeah. it that bad? Yeah. Well, I haven't started like, it yet. No, um, I mean, like, dark. Yeah. yeah. Like, maybe a lot of other people would like it, but m- not for me, yeah. I don't think. Okay. Um, it's, it was coined by Robert Ressler, who is the former director of the FBI Violent Criminal Appreh- Apprehension Program, mm-hmm. and he coined that in the 70s. Um, question number nine, what are the three behaviors known as the McDonald triad? All right bedwetting yes uh fire starting yes arson and killing small animals yes cruelty to animals Mm -hmm. so (laughs) these are considered to be the 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 indication in children that they will have future violent behaviors Mm -hmm. is this three because someone mcdonald dr mcdonald did a (laughs) old mcdonald old mcdonald did a study um that has since been uh, it's more complicated mm-hmm. than that that has since been not oh, necessarily yeah. debunked but there are more aspects Absolutely. including head injuries head injuries damn <laughs> head injuries i don't think i did you have a head injury as a child oh, i don't think i did certainly <laughs> i don't think i don't think i did i might have to text my mother after this to find out if i like this fell off or something i could never shave my head because i am sure i have just a, have a of bunch dents. of scars bunch of dents <laughs> old <laughs> dings and dents <laughs> your your head looks, like a, paper. <laughs> <laughs> head looks like a wiffle ball paper oh you poor thing and i know you know this last question in the seinfeld episode the frogger kramer warns about a yet unnamed serial killer running loose in the park and two suggestions he made to the police were headzo and son of dad what was the ultimate nickname of the serial killer the lopper the lopper <laughs> Um, the serial killer in this episode, uh, de- deheaded, beheaded, <laughs> defenestrated yeah, okay. yeah. his victims. Um, that is also a very good episode. Yeah. Um, we both just love Seinfeld. And I think that was one of the few things that, uh, the few things, one of the first things <laughs> yep, I should say. Is, one of the few things Julie and I have actually. in common. Seinfeld and podcasts. <laughs> that is it. Otherwise, we do not speak to each other. Let's be honest. So that was my quiz wow. on serial killers That's and my great. topic on cryptozoology. Wonderful. Mm. So clever. Well, thank you all for listening. Um, if uh, you want to hear more, please remember that you can find us on uh, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, anywhere you find uh, a podcast, anywhere you want to listen to a <laughs> anywhere podcast. Anywhere you want. 
Uh, you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at misinfopod. We have a Facebook page. Yeah, oh, yeah. I forgot to mention that last time. We have yeah, a Facebook page. We have a Facebook page. So uh, you can share with, um, you know, other people that you know yeah. that might enjoy us. Please rate, review, and subscribe uh, to us, please. Yes. And, and Oh, yeah. And we have a website. Oh, yes. www.missinfopod.com. Yeah. So. Well, we will see you next time, everyone. Yeah, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.